Hey folks, welcome to the House of Kraus. I'm Richard Kraus. You know, one of the things that I love doing when I'm not going to the movies or doing general housekeeping chores around the old House of Kraus is curling up by the fireplace with a great book. And I've got a great book for you if you like doing that too. It's called All Our Wrong Todays by Ilan Mastai. He's a writer and producer who's written movies for both indie and Hollywood studios. His most recent film was The F Word, inexplicably renamed What If in the United States. And we'll talk about that in just a little while. There's a comedy starring Daniel Radcliffe, Zoe Kazan, Adam Driver, played at the Toronto International Film Festival, won awards all over the place, played in 30 countries. After that, it would be natural to follow it up with a, another big hit movie, but instead, Elan took some time and wrote a book called All Our Wrong Todays. It's a science fiction story about a guy named Tom, who's kind of the hero of this story, if you can call him that. He uses his father's experimental time machine to travel back and forth in time from the present to 1965, and he puts at risk everything that he loves to do so. It's a fantastic book. Publishers Weekly compared it to The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, it's being made into a big time movie. You'll hear all about this a little bit later on. Uh, but a real treat to speak with Elam Mastai about uh, lots of stuff, including the writing of All Our Wrong Todays. Saying earlier, you're sitting in a room for about a year doing this alone, and then you come out and you talk about it. How do you feel right now? Excited. I mean, you know, this book was a passion project for me. I mean, I'm a screenwriter. I work in the movie business. Nobody was really asking me to write a book. It was a, <laughs> it was a passion project that I did sort of to challenge myself, right. uh, and because I had a story that I wanted to tell. Um, so now this process of getting it out into the world, it's a little weird because you have to let it, this thing that was so intimate and personal is now a public thing. At the same time. That's why I wrote it, is to be able to share it with people. So it's exciting. It's I have a problem. I've written a bunch of books, and I have a problem letting them go. Right. I have a problem saying, okay, now it's completely done. My last book, I actually changed a little bit as it went from its first printing into its second printing because I couldn't let it go. Um, it, in the film business, I think you have to be – uh, used to letting things go, having other people come in and start tooling around with the work that you've done. Um, did that prepare you for this process at all? Yeah, absolutely. Being a screenwriter for, I've been a screenwriter for more than a decade, it very much trains you for that process. Mm -hmm. Because, look, film is a collaborative medium. Even if you're the only writer, like I was on The F Word, you're still handing it over to the director, the cast, the producer, the crew. Um, and, and so you just get used to handing your work over. Part of what you you like about it is to see what your work evokes in others. Right. This is different because I'm not handing it over to other filmmakers. I'm handing it over to the, to a reader. Yeah. But yeah, I feel pretty trained after years in, 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 the, in the movie business to just kind of let it go. Although if I knew, I, now that you told me that, now I know I can make a little change. If there's another printing, I'll, I'll keep that in mind. You, you can. Yeah. You, you have to catch it early. They were just, you know, in my case, it was like, hey, we're going into a second printing. I'm like, well, if that's happening, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hang on for a sec. I, I, I I think it was, I remember reading an uh, interview with Francis Ford Coppola, and, uh, and he said, you know, a work of art is never finished, it's merely abandoned. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So you grew up in Vancouver, 
you talk about, uh, you know, going to a bookstore, so you'd see William Gibson looking at the books in the bookstores, uh, coffee shop, Douglas Copeland would be sitting there. Tell me a little bit about growing up there and, and you know, what that was like. For sure. You. Yeah, I mean, I was born and raised in Vancouver. Uh, obviously, it's an incredibly beautiful city. It's also, a, it's funny, I don't think I thought about this when I was a kid, obviously, but it's a city where the scale of the world, of nature, the mountains, the ocean, the forest, kind of dwarfs anything humans can, can make. <laughs> and so I think that really influenced my, my, my sense of perspective, you know, that no matter what we humans do, it still kind of pales in comparison to, to sort of the grandeur uh, of, of the natural world. I, I often, every time I go back to Vancouver now, it's like 10 more condo towers of gone up. And I, I, I make the same joke to my sisters. I, I'm saying, like, you, you can't ruin the Vancouver skyline, no matter how hard you try. <laughs> it's true, with those mountains in the background. Um, but I, I, you know, a, a big seminal event for me as a kid in the 80s was Expo 86. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I loved it. I mean, it was a big moment for the city, for Vancouver, kind of like sort of showing itself to the world. And I, I mean, you know, the monorail, which we still use in Vancouver as like our public transportation system, <laughs> which is hilarious. But, you know, there was like little robots and McDonald's built a bar restaurant and, you know, this sort of, th- that idea of the World's Fair, you know, from the 1964 World's Fair in New York, 67 in Expo Montreal, um, you know, these really influenced our vision of what the future was going to look like. And it's only recently that I, when I was sort of looking up old images of Expo 86 to kind of remind myself that I realized Expo 86 was actually the last World's Fair ever hosted in North America. Hmm. We never hosted another one after that. It's sort of like we we stopped dreaming of the future in those utopian terms. And it's it's interesting to me now that I wrote a book which sort of explores those themes when Expo 86 was so seminal for me as a kid. And yet, as a grown-up, I realized like that was the last one we ever did. And it, it sort of changed Vancouver a little bit. I remember when it was happening, I'd been, you know, a couple of times. And Vancouver seemed, and I don't mean this as a slight to people who are living in Vancouver, <laughs> but it seemed a little sleepier to me uh, before yeah. that. And then it seemed like it was a bit more on the world stage, and it and it and it felt like there was a, a bit of a sea change in the city after that. Yeah, I think people sort of sat up and took notice of what was going on in Vancouver, and I think that sort of process of rapid growth and sort of cultural shift culminated in the Olympics, which, right. um, you know, there's a lot of concern in Vancouver what it was going to do to the city. I think it was an amazing event when it happened, but. There is, you know, there's been a sort of a globalized acceleration. You know, you can see what's happened in the real estate market in Vancouver, where yeah. things have really advanced even more aggressively. And and there are a lot of legitimate concerns about where Vancouver is going as a city. But you can really see this this sort of period bookended by Expo '86 and the and the Olympics. Well, now that you can't afford to live there, yeah. I guess that's that yeah. is going to change things, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a weird model now, where I mean, it's so hard for people to live in the cities. I mean, I guess it'll be interesting to see because when I was growing up, you know, you like never went to the suburbs. Yeah. I mean, I didn't. I was, a, I was a city kid, and being a city kid in Vancouver wasn't that big a city. Living in Toronto as I do now, every time I go back to Vancouver, I always overestimate by 20 minutes how long it takes me to get anywhere. I'm, I'm, I'm always late in Toronto, and I'm always early in Vancouver. But it's interesting now because you have a lot of people, a lot of artists and, and writers and filmmakers actually moving out to the burbs and so because they can't afford to live in the city. And so it's actually you're getting these really interesting cultural pockets in places um, that I, like having grown up in Vancouver, would have never thought of as a cultural hub. But it, you see how even something like real estate changes the sort of cultural dynamics of a city. I'm speaking with Eli Mastai. Uh, his book, All Our Wrong Todays, uh, will be on sale this week, wherever you buy books. Uh, the reviews have been fantastic. Congratulations Thank on that. You. Your grandfather was a chemist. Yeah. 
And uh, he was also a big science fiction fan. And that sort of rubbed off on you a little bit, I understand. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I was growing up, my grandfather had this extensive collection of old kind of pulp sci-fi from the 50s and 60s. And, and as a kid, I was just like fascinated by them. You know, I loved the, uh, t- you know, the, taking them off the shelf and staring at these sort of garishly painted covers, you know, robots and rocket ships and flying cars and uh, scientists with crazy machines and electricity spurting out and, every which way. And these would have been stories by Ray Bradbury and Philip K. Dick and people like that, like, you know, people that wrote pulp Isaac Books Asimov, then, yeah, we're, yeah, Robert we're Heinlein, writing at a very high level. Absolutely, and but even as a kid, and I think this dovetails with sort of Expo '86 as well, because it was the same period. I realized that the the future that these writers and artists imagined it wasn't actually happening the way they imagined, mm. and I, I was really interested, like what what had happened to the future that we were supposed to have, um, and that you know, and I I never really forgot about that, and uh, it took until now for me to come up with an answer, which is uh, that. Tom Barron, my hero, steals a time machine and screws it up for all of us. Yeah, yeah. And we'll talk about Tom and, and sort sure. of all that stuff. I want to kind of work my way through to get to the point uh, of that. Uh, so you read these books. They, they. I, I interviewed Denis Villeneuve recently, mm. and he had a kind of a similar thing. Now, he's just directed Blade Runner. Arrival yeah. has been nominated for Academy Awards, and now it's turned out he's just signed to do Dune. Yeah. And he told me a kind of a similar story. It was an ant that had boxes right. of these European science fiction magazines, and that's what really drew him in and just lit his imagination on fire. Yeah, it was the same for me. Um, uh, the the influence of them I, I was very profound, even though, you know, some, you look at, the, they, you know, they were literally pulp, right? They were yeah. printed on, like, junky paper, they're brittle, and they're falling apart, but something about the words and the images just captured my imagination and continued to fire over the years. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, I mean, Denis, it's funny to see a guy like that. I mean, I, I sort of, I feel a kinship because I've been following his work as a filmmaker from his early, like, independent mm-hmm. films, like, you know, uh, Tant de Hout yeah. and, yeah, and uh, Maelstrom. And stuff and like that, yeah. yeah, but now it's like seeing him shift from something like Poly Technique or Incendie into Dune. It's amazing. But I thought The Arrival was a terrific movie. Yeah, that and listen, Blade Runner... 2049, I think it's called, I mean, is probably the most anticipated movie of next year. So, I mean, fingers are crossed, man. These are, you know, I I love David Lynch, but I can't really watch his version of Dune. So I just hope that Denny pulls it off, and I'm sure he will. Well, he seems like somebody who loves ideas and also has an incredible visual sensibility. The short story that Arrival's based on, Story of Your Life, is an incredible short story. but But it's like 40 pages long. It's incredibly dense. And when you read it, you'd never think oh, this could be a great movie because it just seems so cerebral. So the way that they kind of unpacked it and found the emotional resonances was, was really impressive. Have you uh, adapted things before? Yeah, I have. You have. I, I've adapted books. I've adapted plays. Uh, I adapted a video game once, although that yeah. didn't go very well. Um, so yeah. And made I, a lot of money, though. Yes, that's, that's true. a Christian Slater movie. Yeah, that's yeah. true. It did. Uh, and then I, I also... I. I Recently adapted it, uh, True Story from This American Life, the NPR radio program. Um, but now I'm in the process of adapting my own book. And it's, uh, you know, it's that's a totally, you know, you can be a lot more aggressive with somebody else's work. And then when you start to do it to your own work, it's it's, it's definitely, it's been a head trip. Well, don't they call it uh, killing your babies? Like it, when you're writing something like this and you write something that you love, you've got this really cool turn of phrase, but you realize it kind of doesn't really work or it doesn't really fit, but you want to use it. And that's what they mean by saying you got to take it, you got to kill your babies. And I imagine it's hard because, you know, as much as people think that writing a novel and doing a screenplay are one and the same, they're very different disciplines. Yeah. I mean, even what you're talking about, like a beautiful turn of the phrase and, you know, you might use a a certain word that you used earlier. And so it creates a kind of a connection in in the reader's mind. I mean, all that sort of very subtle, nuanced stuff. 
you can't do that in a movie, but what you can do is find the visual mm. corollary of that. And that's a lot of what I'm doing is, okay, here's a sort of a literary effect. Well, what would be the visual effect of that? And so it's it's definitely stretches your mind and allows you to reimagine the story. But, you know, for, I'm fortunate. I, I've, I have like a decade plus of work working mm-hmm. as a screenwriter. So I, I knew it was going to be challenging, but I also sort of, I knew exactly what the challenges were. So it's kind of like, I'm going to go climb that mountain over there, but I but I know the mountain. So I know all the places that are, that are going to be hard. Uh, and I, so I, br- I can bring the right equipment with me. I want to find out, and I'm always uh, really kind of interested to talk to writers uh, and and discover when it was that they knew they wanted to write, because it is a solitary job. Screenwriting is a little different. Frequently, you can collaborate, but you're writing novels. It's a it's a different kind of feel. You're going to spend a lot of time alone. It takes a certain personality type, maybe. When did you realize that you were that guy? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it was cumulative, but if I think back. You know, when I was growing up, my mom was uh, an actor in the theater community in Vancouver, and she took me to see a play called New Canadian Kid. It was written by Dennis Foon, who's a playwright. He's gone on to write novels and and, um, movies and that kind of thing. But at the time, he was a playwright. Um, And it it was a great play. Basically, I mean, I don't want to give the whole synopsis, Mm -hmm. but essentially, it's about a kid who immigrates to Canada. But what he did, which was really smart, was so the kid and his parents at home speak English. Um, everybody at school, the teachers, the other kids, they speak this gibberish language. So he can't understand anything that wow. they're, they're saying. But then as the play progresses, little English words start to appear. In, and, you, and, and as he's starting to understand what they're saying, we start to understand. And by the end, he can understand mo- almost everybody speaking mostly in English with right. just a little bit of gibberish. And it was a brilliant way of sort of conveying what it feels like to immigrate to a new country, not speak the language, and feel adrift. Uh, and... And that play, the way it used language, was really striking for me. But even more so, it was written by this man, Dennis Foon, who my mother knew. He was like mm-hmm. a friend of the family. And it was like, oh, he wrote this. This is a job. It's, you know, the entertainment, the, yeah. the books, the plays that I love, they're actually written by people. And so making that connection as a kid, that, that idea that I could do that too became incredibly compelling. Now, of course, when you're a kid, like the, making the actual leap to doing it professionally, it seems like a vast leap. But knowing at least one person who was doing it, it made it feel more, more possible. Yeah, there is something, and, and not even that he's a mentor, but just the idea. I remember that sort of when it clicked for me that you could actually make a living doing this thing. It's not a hobby. It's not a, it can be, but yeah. it's not. It's an it's an actual profession uh, was life-changing. Yeah, I mean, I, even when I was like in university and I was writing a lot and I was making films and I was, um, do, I, I had a radio show on the campus, yeah. on the campus radio, 101.9 FM. Um, <laughs> I, I, it still seemed really like, how am I going to get from aspiration to actually doing it. And then I I really fell into my first screenwriting opportunity and it was kind of like a fluky circumstance, but I ended up getting hired to write this movie that I was totally unqualified to write and it jump-started my career and suddenly I found myself thrust into this professional situation. I was like, oh wow, like you can spend your life wanting to do this thing and then it's like you can almost you feel like you can trip and fall into a job right. and suddenly you go from not having any idea how to do it to, to you're actually <laughs> you're doing it you're on deadline people are waiting for pages it's like that happened really fast oh there's nothing like the pressure of a deadline yeah absolutely yeah the, you can uh, mine uh, unknown depths when you have to <laughs> if someone's waiting on the other end of the line yeah it's amazing how just sort of the expectation can sort of you know, pull all these things out of you that you weren't aware were, were actually there. Yeah. And you lived and worked as a screenwriter in Los Angeles, right? I, I've always gone back and forth, actually. Right. I, I'm, I've always been based in Canada, but I go down there to work. Right. Yeah. And what's, tell me just a little bit, for people that don't understand what that experience is like. Sure. 
Um, and because I had Thomas Lemon in here a while ago who's written a ton of stuff. Yeah. And he said, well, the, you know, if you're a screenwriter, essentially you are going to be fired at some point uh, in the process. <laughs> and he said, I've been fired off of every movie I've ever written. And he's written huge hits, right. the Night at the Museum movies and, and lots of other things too. He said, I've been fired off every single movie I've ever I've ever worked on. Uh, his experience may be different, but it's, it's a different kind of life. Yeah, I mean, look... I think that what people don't always understand about it is that you can make a terrific living just writing movies that never get made. Right. And like that's William, sort of, Gold, uh, William Goldman yeah. wrote Butch Cassidy, and he wrote did a doctor, I think, on on uh, Chinatown with right. Robert Town, and then it, it's written tons of stuff that has never made it to the screen. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I've written at least a dozen movies, some with big studios for like big with big stars yeah. or or really known directors that just haven't been made for whatever reason, and then and, and you end up getting evaluated in the by the movies that did get made, and that's that's fine. I mean, it's a it's a privilege yeah, yeah. to even have that be the situation. But people don't always understand. There's there's all these screenwriters who like who who can spend years and years of their career working on movies that never get made. I think that was part of that the sort of impetus behind the book was because I felt like some of my best work, the stuff I poured myself into, the scripts that I, were, I was right. most proud of, for various reasons, and sometimes they're scheduling reasons, or the person who was your champion takes a new job. They get fired or whatever. Or an yeah. actor that had heat suddenly doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> they, they can't get the movie made anymore. I've been through it all. Yeah. And and I, I was like, you know, I'm, I kind of got a little bit, I mean, even though I love the movie business, I got a little bit sick of like having my best work sitting in a drawer and in, in some studio's sort of vault. Yeah. And I wanted to write something that were, you know, if there was an audience for it, the reader would actually get to read my words. Um, but yeah, I mean, so I've worked in all, I mean, I've, worked on projects, um, you know, I've adapted stuff, I've done original stuff, I've sold pitches, I've been hired on rewrites, I've been th- th- through the whole gamut, I've developed stuff for huge movie stars, I've developed stuff for production companies, or and, as well as independent companies. Um, it, it's, a, it's a very interesting life. I mean, I have, you know, I think Thomas Lennon, he, and he wrote a book about, mm-hmm. about his experience as a yeah. which was great, it was a great read. But I mean, I, I don't have that same attitude. Yeah. I always going in, I always go into everything being like, I'm going to br- get this across the finish line. If it doesn't work out and I get replaced and you can you can get replaced on things. Um, uh, that's going to happen. But I mean, I, I can't write unless I pour myself into it. That's how I, that's how I do it. So for me, I'm not as much of a, I don't have, I mean, and I don't mean this in a negative connotation, but I'm not as much of a mercenary about it. Right. I'm more like, I'm going to do everything I can to get this movie made. And if it doesn't happen, I'm going to dust myself off and write the next thing. It is a novel about time travel. It is a novel about, uh, it, 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 it's a science fiction book. But it feels really personal to me, and it feels really personal uh, personal to me on a number of levels. It's told uh, well. You talk about this third person for in the first couple of chapters. Right. You talk about how to tell the story, and I kind of felt as though I was reading a journal. I kind of felt that I was reading, um, you know, uh, like I was hot wired right into the character's mind as I was reading this. And one of the things that's so cool about it. And there's a lot, and I'll let you tell us the other stuff that's cool about it, is that the main character, unlike a lot of of sci-fi, isn't particularly heroic always, isn't someone, he's not Harrison Ford, he's he's just kind of a regular guy thrust into an extraordinary circumstance. And I kind of loved that. Oh, well, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I mean, where we start with Tom and where we end with Tom. I mean, I wanted to write a book where the person we end up with at the end is so far away from the person that we started with. I wanted it to be a real journey. But yeah, I mean, he is a regular guy living in an extraordinary uh, version of the world. Like, as you sort of said, the book is set 
in the present in 2016, but it's the 2016 that people in the 1950s thought we were going to have. Yeah. Um, so jet boots and, you know, like all that stuff. Robot maids yeah. and food pills yeah. and hotels yeah. on the moon. <laughs> yeah, all that stuff that, that we, we thought was going to be our, our, our present. Um, and then, of course, he finds himself uh, stranded in our version of the world, what, what we think of as the real world, mm-hmm. our 2016. But, of course, to him, it seems like everything's gone wrong. And I, part of it, I was, I was sort of inspired by, you know, Obviously, there's a lot of uh, dystopia in pop culture right now, YA literature, movies, TV. But I like I I thought about somebody from my grandfather's generation being transported to our world, and they'd be like, they would think this is the dystopia, and this is not how it was supposed to go. And so that idea of combining those those two, my sort of childhood interest in these sort of like wild utopian versions of the future, with a sort of an awareness that that for a lot of those for somebody from there, this would seem like the dystopia, (laughs) and that gave me a chance to to not just write like I like writing about science and technology Mm -hmm. and all these sort of big sci-fi concepts, but fundamentally, I I want to write about a character who has all of that stripped away. He comes from a version of the world where everything is taken care of for you. Mm -hmm. You know, everything's automated, virtualized, you know, there's robotics, there isn't crime and poverty and, and war uh, and disease. And then he's brought, and he ends up here in our world where we have all those things, but it strips everything away and it, it, it sort of forces him to confront like what's actually important to him. Family, love, his identity, his job, like what he, what, what is meaningful? And I, I wanted to be able to write a story that was funny and fun and fast paced, but at its core asks those questions like what makes you happy? What gives your life meaning? But with a lot of plot twists and big character reveals. Well, yeah, there's all sorts of stuff. I mean, I, I love some of the, the conveniences of that life where if you want to drink, if you want to you know get drunk, you right. can sort of gauge the level at which you're going to get drunk. Yes, an yeah. intoxicant patch. And, yes, yeah, that's right. That flushes your uh, liver with yeah. with uh, a, you know antitoxins. Yeah, uh, I've been to a few uh, cocktail parties where I wish I had one of those <laughs> before I went. Well, Don Henley, I think it was Don Henley from the Eagles that told a story about how to get through any party in Los Angeles is when you first get there, drink two beers really fast, <laughs> and then drink one beer an hour for the rest of the time that you're there. So you just get like just a little happy buzz, buzz, and then you keep it going all the way through, and that's the only way to do it. The only <laughs> think, way to survive. I think when you're you know. A <laughs> rock star uh, from the Eagles. You can probably get away with that. Uh, yeah. I don't think I can handle that. No. Um, I was in, I mean, not to start to kind of like, um, you know, toss out all these like uh, stereotypes, but I was in England doing advanced press for the book and I, I couldn't believe how much they drank. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, like no offense to British people and it might just been the literary community, right. Right. but I was like, I can't keep up. I'm Canadian. Like I need, I need a nap. <laughs> Uh, so this starts off as a screenplay, is that right? Uh, I had read this, your book, All Are Wrong Today. No, no, no. no? I, I originally, you know, I'm a screenwriter, so I originally yeah. had, I thought about it, maybe it would be a movie. Right. Um, but I, I, but actually, the more I started to think about it, um, I, you know, look, anytime you write a movie, even a book, like it takes years, you have mm-hmm. to be really committed to it. So I like to, when I have an idea, I like to sit with it for a little while right. before I start writing, because I want to make sure that I'm going to be able to stick with it. Um but the more I started to think about it, the more I realized that the way to tell the story was actually as as a novel. Now, um, I have sold the movie rights to Paramount, and I'm working on the screenplay now, but I wrote the book first. So I sold it as a book, and then now I'm reinventing it as a movie. But yeah, um, no, I, this was always a book, and, and I very much wanted it to be a book that sort of um, celebrates the experience of reading the book. You know, mm-hmm. I like, So as a screenwriter, going from that sort of form of screenwriting to the sort of freedom of writing a novel, I, I really wanted to sort of have fun with it and, and hopefully kind of pass that fun on to the onto the reader. And as fun as the book is, and it is fun, and it's funny frequently, there are parts of it that, that I thought was uh, really, or I thought were really uh, poignant. There is a poignant, this doesn't really give anything away. It gives away a small chapter, a small 
part of the book, but it, it doesn't affect the story. So I think I can say this, sure. that at one point Tom's mother dies right. in it. And then afterwards, uh, he touches her for the first time. And there's a few pages of description about the idea of the first time you touch a dead person, yeah. that who was the last time you touched them, they were soft and supple and alive. And that's the first time that you understand what happens when yeah. when it's a biological process? It's a scientific process almost, and that really uh, because I uh, that happened to me. That experience happened to me exactly, and I'm sure it's happened to hundreds of thousands of other people. Yeah. Uh, and 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 it really struck me. Where where because. Where does that come from for you? Well, I mean, like Tom, my, my mom died. Yeah. Um, she didn't die in a crash in a flying car, yeah, obviously. Yeah, in a hovercraft. But, yeah. uh, but, you know, she died quite rel- – she was ill, but it happened very quickly. Mm. And, um, you know, I was in my mid-20s uh, when it happened. And, yeah, I mean – Obviously, it's very personal, the loss mm-hmm. of a parent and how that kind of changes you. And, and this felt very personal in the book, which is yeah. why I mention it. Yeah. And, and, you know, it was a very profound, obviously um, terrible time for me and my family. Um, but it also, I mean, I feel like the last gift my mom was able to give me was a sense of, she, it changed my priorities when my mom died. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's when I got serious about everything in my life. Like, I felt like I had been kind of, like, coasting, figuring things out, and, you know, that sort of, in some ways, and I don't think, I think this is true of a lot of people I've talked to who have lost a parent. It's like, the last gift your parent gives you is a sense of your mortality, right. and that sense of, like, no, w- this is what matters, and all these things that you were worrying about, they don't matter, you know? And it was important for Tom as a character. I wanted him to be grounded in, in, in you know, when you write a book with all this sort of, like, cra- amazing technology, um, but it's still, like, it's. I wanted to, at that point in the book, just peel all that away and ground him in just simple human truths, the loss of a parent, mm-hmm. that we are alive, and that feeling of when you realize that it's not just a dead body. The person who's, your, you know, your mother uh, is suddenly this inanimate object and how that feels. And, and you know, in the book, it's a, it, it really, it gives, it's like a switches flip with him in his life. Yeah. And I felt like that for me too. Now, I didn't steal a time machine, um, but, you know, I might have if I had access to one. Well, it, it felt to me like a, a, a flip, a switch was flipped in the book as yeah. well as I as I got to that piece of the book because up until that point Tom is a character who is you know uh, didn't seem terribly introspective to me yeah. there's there's a lot of setup you need the setup you need to understand where it's coming from and then all of a sudden you get this insight mm-hmm. into uh, how he really thinks about things in a in a much broader kind of scale yeah and that was intentional I mean um, I wanted yeah I. You, you want to surprise the reader, yeah. and sometimes those surprises are plot twists. Sometimes yeah. there's some big secret is revealed. Other times it's that, oh, like emotion is going to be taken seriously, like bad things are going to happen and there are going to be consequences. And and so some, so I feel like at my job as a writer is to keep giving uh, these sort of like handing these presents to the reader and you right. don't know what you're, what, what's going to, you know, you're going to open them, you're not sure what's in them. Um, sometimes it's going to be like a, you know, like sometimes it's going to be like a little whatever, like a jack-in-the-box is going to yeah. pop out. And other <laughs> times it's going to be something really, uh, uh, you know, emotional yeah. that you, that the character and you through them has to deal with. And that's part of the the fun of writing and it's also the challenge of writing because you want to keep, um, you want to keep everybody on their toes. You want to keep them turning pages. And this book is a, per, a page turner. It is called All Our Wrong Todays. Elam Mastai is the writer uh, it's been optioned uh, to become a, a movie 
and we've only got like 30 seconds left here. Who do you envision playing Tom? <laughs> that's a tough question because I'm actually writing the movie and that's going to be a real thing. And right. what if they listen to this <laughs> and they're like, uh, you didn't say me. Um, ah, right, right, yeah. right. I, uh, you know, I mean, part of the fun of a book is that it, the character can be whoever the reader imagines. And right. I, I want to preserve that. I mean, right. when the movie comes out, that's obviously amazing. Yep. And then it'll be that it'll actor. It'll be a different thing. But yeah. for now, in that period between the movie coming out and the book being out there, I want people to imagine he looks however they want. It's about time travel. It is uh, a, a book that that uses that as sort of the core of the story. I responded to the to the human aspect of the character, I think. But the time stuff's really, really fascinating. What is it about time and time travel? That's a big question. Right. Uh, that 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 sort of fascinates you so. Yes, let's discuss this topic that has befuddled thinkers for the entirety of human knowledge. Um, I mean, look, time travel stories are usually stories about regret. Uh, You know, we all have regrets. We all want a second chance. Um, And so I think that there's something sort of essentially human about that that, that desire to kind of go back and fix your mistakes or your accidents. Um, But time, you know, it doesn't work like that. Um, I mean, actually, you know, it's really no more likely to go back in time than it would be to like re- reverse the orbit of the planet around the sun. <laughs> right. I mean, it's just not how physics works. Now, having said that, you know, our modern life would have been unimaginable to people a hundred years ago, let alone 200 years ago. So who knows where we're going to be in 2117? Right. Maybe we'll figure that out. Um, but I love thinking about it because time, it's really, it is, it is actually the thing that defines our existence more than anything else. Um, you know, Everything around us is all about time, and so thinking about it, thinking about it in a in a sort of a, a nonlinear way, in a more supple way, being able to manipulate it, it's sort of it's like the, the it's really the essential dream. And uh, you do that in the in the book, and you have said that this novel was kind of your own time machine. How is that? <laughs> um, well, you know, you get to first of all, I got to bring to life this version of the of the world, mm-hmm. the sort of alternate version of 2016 that I'd been dreaming about since I was a kid. I, you know, when you're in it, you get to live inside it. Yeah, yeah. At the same time, I mean, you know, we talked in an earlier segment about some of the personal stuff in my, you know, that's happened to me in my past and how it found its way, sometimes very directly, sometimes veiled, um, into the book. And so it was a chance to kind of go back to those sort of seminal moments in my life and think about them and think about how to tell that story in the context of this story. And so I found, you know, going back and thinking about my mom's death and how that affected me and how I would want to express that because it's a thing we don't talk about a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. this this is not like a book that's like, a, it's not like a sad book, although no. there are emotional moments. But I do think that, you know, death is a very slippery thing. It's hard to talk about. So, um, and this is a book where, uh, you know, the character makes some very damaging, uh, bad decisions because of grief. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I mean, I think that that's something that's incredibly relatable. I, and I wanted to be able to grapple with those questions of how things like grief and heartbreak affect the trajectory of our lives, even though most of the book is, is more of like a fun kind of like thrill ride. Is it cathartic for you at all to write about you know, sort of weave personal moments into things like this? Yeah. In some ways, I mean, it, it's, it's what makes the book worth writing is right. the chance to talk about this stuff, to be vulnerable, um, you know, to expose these parts of myself that I, I, I hope will communicate something and maybe they provide comfort or some sort of insight into people who are going through that themselves or who have gone through it in their lives. Because, um, you know, you write a book, it's a, 
I don't think of a book as like standing on a street corner with a megaphone shouting out, everybody listen to my opinions. I think of it as a conversation, you know? Right, right. I'm having a conversation with the authors and the novels that inspired me, and, I'm, and I'm, I want to have that conversation with readers as well. So yeah, I think we're all stri- striving for connection, you know? And, 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 and so to me, that's, that's the whole point of it. At the same time, it's the scariest part of it as well. I mean, you know, like I can sit here and we can talk about the nature of time or talk yeah. about like, you know, time machines and, and flying cars and all this sort of stuff. And it's fun. I mean, you know, to, to talk about these things like the death of a parent and how that affects you or how heartbreak kind of can change you um, is obviously a lot more personal. Yeah. But, um, you know, I mean, that's what's great about literature is that you, you can have something like a book like this, which, which deals with both. Deals with both, and and again, I don't. You said this is a, a thrill ride of a book, and it is. I don't. I don't want to give the impression to people that they're going to to walk away yeah. uh, head hanging after reading this because <laughs> no. it's really fun. Yeah, it's a really fun book. No, but I, I mean, I, I genuinely believe that you know when you have real emotions, when mm-hmm. you actually care about the characters, uh, then everything that happens to them has more stakes. Yep. Like it's 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 more compelling if you actually care about them, if you understand what makes them tick. And so yeah, I mean, I do did a lot of research into like you know the nature of time and quantum physics and all and, and, all, and alternate realities there's a bit of math at the beginning there's some there's math a, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah um orbital mechanics and all yeah. that sort of stuff but i also spend as much time thinking about the psychology of the characters uh, uh, you know the first person i got to read the book was actually a therapist friend who because right. uh, i wanted her to analyze the characters and tell me what she thought about them and if, and if it all made sense psychologically so as a read uh, as a writer you use uh, what do they call them, blind readers or something? That, well, like ha- the idea that you give your book out before you give it to your editor, I guess, right? Yeah, I have people who I, I, I you know, I mean, it's funny, as a screenwriter, I have a good cadre of, of other screenwriters right. and we share each other's work, but it was funny, of course, because, you know, you write a novel and I tried to get some friends to read it and they're like, this is like really long. And it's going to take yeah. me a, a week <laughs> to read it, yeah. But but I have some folks, uh, friends, some friends of mine who were like, aren't in the, in the, yeah. in the film, aren't writers, aren't in the film business. And yeah, it's great to draw off them, um, you know, as long as they're willing to do it and I have the time because they're going to give you an insight. You know, another screenwriter might talk about the story structure, right. but a therapist is going to talk about the character's emotional journey in a way that I- is totally fascinating. The book is called All Our Wrong Todays uh, by Elan Mastai. Uh, on page 47, I made a note of a quote that I thought was really interesting. If you let your grief be for sale, it'll end up worthless. And, you know, I, I get what it means in the context mm. of the story. But I wonder if it's not uh, a reflection on sort of this culture of outrage that we live mm-hmm. in right now, where if you go on Twitter or Facebook or wherever, uh, people are outraged. They're mad about everything. And when you're mad about everything, you're mad about nothing because uh, it, it, it's not possible to be that outraged all the time. That's what this sort of yeah. set off bells for me. Yeah, I mean, I, I will say that that is said to the main character by yeah. another character. Yeah. That's not his perstective, yeah. but it, stri- it strikes him when, when, when she says that to him. Yeah, I mean, I think it's two things. I think what you're saying is, is that's a very insightful point, and, and I, I agree. It's like when you're mad at every... I think people are looking for reasons to be mad. I think I'm people saying, are incredibly yeah. tightly wound and anxious, and they're looking for reasons to blow up. Um, and Twitter provides a great, way, a great way of doing that, but it's also sort of like, in some ways, it's you're throwing a lot of like anger out in the world, but it doesn't actually like affect you. You well, know, it's clean. You, but you're creating a history of your anger. <laughs> that's true. That's true. You're creating a, 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 record a of document your of your own uh, inconsistent personality. But I think I think I was also writing about my own. You know, we, I mean, this is just letting what we just talked about. But you know, when you pour personal stuff into it, like you know, you t- your, a story about time travel and alternate realities where you're also talking about the death of your mother. I was like, you know, you, you I did, I was thinking a lot about like how much of myself am I putting in this story? Right. How much am I going to trade um, 
how much am I going to trade on my own kind of like personal loss or my own personal fears or anxieties um, to tell this story? And I decided that the only way, you know, I mean, the character who's asking that question, that these are questions I was asking of myself. Am I putting my grief, am I making my grief for sale? Um, but I decided that the only way to tell this story was to just be as honest as possible mm-hmm. and, and to be as straightforward as possible. Uh, yeah. I think we're we're getting down to the last few minutes here, so I'm just going to bang through a couple of questions that I want to get to. The book is called All Our Wrong Todays by Elan Mastai. It's available this week uh, wherever you buy books. Check it out. It's a really wonderful book. Uh, in a couple of years, probably, you'll see it on the big screen, but read it. You'll be one of those, you want to be one of those people that will have read it first. Yeah. That yes. can say, yeah, you know what? Yeah, I read that way before. I read it before everyone was reading it. I agree. That's yeah. a very good idea. You want to be that person. Uh, the book is about time travel. Is there a moment in history that you would like to be, you would like to have been present for and why? My great aunt, uh, my father's aunt, was the dessert chef to the Sultan of Morocco no. before the Second World War. <laughs> and my father insists to this day that she made, was, made the best pastries of all time. Now, it might seem like a waste of a time machine to want to go back in time to try dessert. I'm a very big dessert fan. And just also, you know, my father's family had to leave Morocco um, during the Second World War, right. and they had to escape from Marrakesh. So, and the whole family left. I don't have any hist- connection to Morocco anymore. So the idea of going back, because I'm born in Canada, and my mom was born in Chicago. Um, So going back and and experiencing like that time period and also trying some of those tasty pastries, uh, I don't know, there's something about that I find really compelling. So it's a very personal answer. Well, I I like the personal answer. This is a question that I've asked a a, a number of times to a number of people. Men, generally speaking, say, oh, man, I'd like to go back. to." Women often say, "Uh, I I don't want to go back in history. (laughs) (laughs) I think right now is a good time for me to, I want to be in this moment in history. And frankly, I'm definitely more interested in moving forward in time. Uh, You know, I mean, more than looking back, I'd love to know what's going to happen. I think right now we all would. (laughs) <laughs> I was, if you could uh, send me back to New York in about 1974 so I could go to CBGB's Good and see music. the Talking Heads and yeah. Patti Smith, I would do that. I saw Patti Smith playing horses live uh, for wow. the first time in 20 years in concert on uh, New Year's Eve last year in San Francisco. It was amazing. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. A legend. Hey, have you read her book, Just Kids? Yeah. You know, what a wonderful book. And like in terms of I, 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 I write, but more from uh, I write about people. I wrote pro profiles of people and that sort of thing. Uh, and I read that book and I just couldn't get over how raw and personal and fun and and sad and everything. It was all wrapped up into one and poetic, all wrapped up into one book. Yeah, no, I found it actually very influential because she has such a clear voice, mm-hmm. you know, and I, and that, that book actually, it's funny that we're talking about it because her voice really, I mean, even though you read my book, you're not going to say, oh, Tom sounds like Patti Smith. He obviously doesn't. <laughs> but just the idea of like, I, I wanted it to feel like a memoir. And yeah. that was a, a book, that memoir really influenced me. I, I wanted it to feel like, oh yes, alternate realities and time machines and all this stuff. But this is, this is actually written as his memoir. Yeah. And so that, that book was one of my touchstones. Oh, well, I'm glad we, I'm glad we, we circled around to it. Uh, the book that we've been talking about about is All Our Wrong Todays. It's a novel by Elan Mastai. Uh, we never got to talk about the F word. We have uh, 40 seconds left. Why did they change the title to What If in the U.S.? It, it was the um, the ratings board, the MPAA. Yeah. They basically said, like, you can't 
ca- call a movie the F word in the United States. Even though the F was friends. Even though the what, F yeah. was friends. They just basically w- straight out refused. You know, they felt that American civilization would collapse if we released a movie called the F word. It turns out they didn't need our help. <laughs> but uh, so they changed the, the title to What If, which is a lot more innocuous. But, yeah. um, you know, I, honestly, we were just happy to have such a huge release in the U.S. Well, it's a good movie. Rent that movie and then pick up a copy of All Our Wrong Today's, uh, a novel by Elan Mastai. Elan, thanks so much, man. This is really fun. Thank you for having me. Okay, we had to get a little movie chat in right at the very end there, but most of all, I wanted to give you a sense of all our wrong todays and what it's all about and, and the thought process that goes behind writing something like that. And I think Elan Mastai did a masterful job, not only writing the book, but talking about writing the book. It's a tough thing to do, and I really like talking to that guy. Uh, that's it, though. That's all there is. The House of Kraus is closed for another week. Thank you for stopping by. Thanks to Elan. Thanks to all of you that come by every week. It's always a treat to have you here. Now it's time to shuffle off, run to the bookstore, pick up all our wrong todays, and, and enjoy it as much as I did. We'll catch you next week. Be sure to come back on Monday. We put a new show up every single Monday. You never know who's going to stop by for a visit. It just might be one of your favorite people, so make sure you swing by. 